you could feel how wonderful it was to be in a room with other people who feel as strongly as we do that hate and divisiveness have no place in our community. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. While there is a national election, in the end, all politics is local. And we know some people who imagine a better world and aren't sitting passively by. On this week's show, you'll meet some of the inspiring activists behind the founding of Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida, Reverend Dr. Sharon Harris-Ewing, Dr. Lisa Freund, and Reverend Tony Fisher. I think that voters in this country are seeing abortion as part of a larger agenda in the Republican Party to take away personal freedoms. Last month, voters in several states were able to give a clear response to some of the most outrageous Christian nationalist incursions on our democracy and individual rights. Of course, lots can change between now and November 2024, but with campaigns already underway, it's important to pay close attention to the trends already developing. On this week's show, we'll get the insights of political management expert Greg LaBelle. We are growing the state of belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation, the State of Belief podcast, I want to make sure you're subscribed to. So please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Political management expert and educator Greg LaBelle has been our go-to voice for election analysis for many years on this show. Now retired, Greg continues to engage in both academic and practical aspects of our democracy, and I'm happy to have him back on The State of Belief. Greg, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Paul. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. It's great to be with you. And first of all, we should say you have history both with the state of belief, but also with Interfaith Alliance. And so what I love about um, talking to you today is that you bring just an acute political analysis, but you also don't ignore the religious aspect that often is playing, sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground, but sometimes is missed by um, some folks. So I just really appreciate your perspective and also your being here. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we had uh, that Tuesday night, but religion actually did play a role in that democracy exercise of voting that happened. And I am curious what, you know, let's think back to, I think it was November 7th when the election happened. And what were some of your thoughts as you were watching the results come in, thinking about the, you know, our democracy, but also religion's role and how things were playing out across the country. Well, it's really a classic example, isn't it, of, of what the Interfaith Alliance has always 
um, uh, paid attention to and tried to draw attention to is that uh, intermingling uh, between um, religion and politics, which uh, um, I think most of us agree is probably not healthy for either side, either religion or politics uh, when it gets too close. And it's playing out in the context uh, this cycle as it has in the past on social issues, um, particularly issues of women's reproductive rights and the rights of the LGBTQ community. And I think that um, we see it playing out in the presidential race. We watch uh, the Iowa contest unfolding um, on the Republican side, and we're constantly being lectured to by uh, religious leaders, what I would call extreme right religious leaders in, in Iowa, um, telling folks uh, how to vote and uh, issuing all sorts of voter records and so on and so forth and trying to directly affect the um, process of the of the nominations for president. So it's in one sense, it's really sort of more of the same, Paul, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so let's do talk about what happened in Ohio, which, you know, I think some of the loudest religious voices were certainly clear that Ohio should reject um, having abortion as available. And and yet uh, you and I know that the majority of religious people in America actually support the right of women to make decisions about that for themselves yep. rather than religious leaders or governmental leaders uh, enforcing one way or another. It's a very personal choice. Did that surprise you, a 13-point difference? Uh, did it surprise you when it came in? The spread surprised me. Um, the, the win really did not because we have seen that every time this issue has come up post-Dobbs. We have seen in a number of states, in some surprising states, some as surprising and maybe even more surprising than Ohio in some ways, that voters going to the polls looked at this and said, no, this is not the road we want to go down. You know, Paul, I think in some ways the Virginia situation was even more instructive as uh, Governor Youngkin uh, really put his, his reputation as an up-and-coming Republican leader on the line by trying to uh, move an agenda through the issue was not on the ballot, uh, but this was an off-year election where all the members of the uh, of the Senate and the House of Delegates were up, and he really tried to make this about abortion, uh, and tried to rebrand abortion the uh, positions that he and others uh, in the Republican Party have taken, and move from talking about it as a ban to talking about it as a limit, and that was in some ways even even more instructive and a surprise um, mm -hmm. to me. But I think it speaks to the same issue as, as what we saw happen in Ohio with, with the results there. I honestly think, though, there's a sort of a bigger issue here. And I think that, uh, again, I think both these states uh, sort of point to it. I think that voters in this country are seeing abortion as part of a larger agenda in the Republican Party to take away personal freedoms. We see them taking on the issue of books and libraries. We see them taking on the issues of LGBTQ, especially transgender members of our society. So I, I think voters are beginning to see this, and frankly, I sort of hope they are, as a, as a larger issue of which abortion is a part. And that, I think, may be one of the reasons that there seems to be so much power and strength behind this movement. People are are. are uncomfortable with the direction they see the Republican Party going in. Well, it's, you know, I was just in uh, Florida in Collier County. And when I was there, literally, I looked down at the headline and it said 400 books had been taken off shelves. And uh, these are books, many of which you know and you read growing up. And some of them are new. And they say, oh, you know, do you want your kids reading about 
sex. They they try to put it in pornography. And, you know, we did a, a wonderful book ban event on the Capitol. And, and it's like they, they are trying to conflate things age appropriate yes. things you know there is not pornography in elementary school they may be pointing to the fact that some of their classmates may have two moms or two dads and that should be definitely okay i mean i certainly want that for my family for you know for other kids so i think i think what's interesting is that trans was also on the ballot in in virginia there was a lot of scare tactics there was yes. a lot of effort to demonize trans people and yeah. make people scared and I, I'm very gratified by the fact that at least in that case, it did not win. Unfortunately, across the country, anti-trans bills have been successful in too many cases. But I, I actually think that it's an important messaging question. You know, we, when we think about groups like Moms for Freedom uh, and, you know, they have freedom in their name. And what do they mean by freedom? I often like have this conversation when I when people are like religious freedom. Religious freedom. And I, and my question is always, well, who's freedom and who's religion? You know, right. like, let's ask, the, exactly. let's ask the next question. We all want freedom, but whose freedom gets to take priority? And your freedom to restrict the freedom of my children to read, how does that result in freedom? It's an interesting message battle uh, around the election, and it's just beginning. You know, something else that came up as far as language, and I know you're very attuned to language, as anyone in politics has to be. Did you see that um, former President Trump called his political opponents vermin? Yes. I and many others found that to be, you can't really say, oh, well, Trump crossed a line because what line? I mean, where, where, what line has he not crossed already? But yeah. this, in this moment, when we're experiencing such the rising anti-Semitism, rising anti-Muslim hate, so much tension in our society, and then to go out there with my opponents are vermin, which is anyone who lives in New York City like I am. Vermin is what we delegate to rats and cockroaches and things like that. It's a terrible phrase. Talk to me about like how you understand this moment in American political election language history. I actually made a note about about the vermin remark. It was up in my home state of New Hampshire, up in Claremont, that, that he made that statement. And I think historically, we have to uh, keep in mind that vermin is a specific term that both Mussolini and Hitler used in creating that otherization in both their societies, uh, which denied certain segments of their population, uh, their humanity. So it's, it is a word that's more loaded than I think we realized at first until some people sort of dug back and, and, and looked at sort of the history of the word. I, I'll tell you, Paul, there was another phrase that came out of that weekend where he talked about immigrants from Central and South America poisoning the bloodline of America. Now, there's another one. There's another Ooh. phrase that harkens to the 1930s in Germany. This is the scary part about this guy. There are no lines. There are no lines over which he will not go. There's, there's um, no bottom, as they say. This idea of poisoning bloodline. Good yeah. Lord. I mean, yeah. what in the world? It, it's terrifying. And it's also like the other thing it points to is this kind of through line of great replacement theory that he's tapping into, which is like a a very pernicious, terrible strain in American history where anybody who's not a white Protestant 
is suspect of replacing the whiteness and the Protestantness of our country and yeah. making it somehow less than. And so, you know, this yeah. is a great replacement theory is what you just said is very much connected to that because yeah. it's a talk about immigration. And if you look at what happened in the shooting in the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, the guy directly references the Great Re- Replacement. Same with Christchurch in New Zealand. Same yeah. in a Buffalo shooting. This leads to violence. Yeah. I do think it's it's a terrifying thing. And we need to be really ready to call it out. And that's, yeah. you know, something certainly that I feel very strongly about it. Interfaith Alliance is, is calling this stuff out because it has all kinds of implications for the vision for the country that various politicians have, which we have to be clear is very different. Yeah, and I, and Paul, your, your your point about about messaging is is a good one, and I think that Republican and Democratic parties have two different issues with messaging, and that one of the things that we heard, and I think particularly Governor Youngkin after losing control of, of the House of Delegates, said, "Oh, we've got to do a better job at messaging." I would argue that there's an opportunity for Democrats to develop a message, and I, I think they have begun to do that. I think for Republicans, it's a deep, deeper problem. It's not about messaging. It's about the policy. The old phrase, you're putting lipstick on a pig. The American people are not accepting this uh, playing with words. They're not accepting this. They can, they can see through it. You know, one of the other issues that we've been talking about since the elections is uh, we're finding that there is this issue with women's reproductive health. And again, I would argue with other issues that is moving people in the direction we want to see them going from a policy perspective, but it doesn't seem to be spilling over to Biden as as the likely Democratic nominee in 24. And so what do we do about that? And I I, I sort of look back because I had this memory in my head about Biden talking about freedom uh, and using that term. And so I went back and and looked at his, actually it's the video, it's the video when he announced his candidacy. And if I may, this is, let me just read some of this to you because I think this may be something that we need to watch. Uh, Biden said extremists are lining up to take on bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you've paid your entire life, cutting taxes from the very wealthy, dictating what healthcare decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love and who they cannot love, and making it more difficult to vote. And I read that and I thought this is when I used to teach this stuff. This is what we call the umbrella concept of of messaging, where you find some sort of overriding theme under which you can place these things that that do fit together. And I think this freedom message that the the campaign has sort of latched onto and hopefully will continue to latch onto helps to make that point. This is a very broad issue. Whatever we think, this is a broader issue than just the question of abortion. It's Abortion is an absolutely crucial, important aspect of this, but it's much more than this. And if the Biden administration, I think, continues to take that approach, I think then the messaging aspect of this for for the Biden reelect and for the House and Senate and so on and so forth becomes a much more successful effort. Republicans have a different problem. It's not about messaging for them. It's about the policy. People don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to have policies that people don't like and win. You know, one of the things that... um that I, I've just been talking to so many people about, including my father, who who just passed away at 95. And uh, and he, you know, we were, you know, I, I'd been talking to him over the years. And I was like, do you remember a time when democracy itself felt as imperiled as it does right now? Uh, and he said, 
We've been through some very difficult times in my 95 years. Uh, he likes to say, I came into this world in the latter part of the Coolidge presidency. But he said he never has felt like he felt now. And I think that that's something we should take seriously. Of course, you know, we can look to the Civil War and other times, but democracy, certainly in my lifetime, never felt as precarious as it does right now. How do you see that as someone who has worked their whole life in the political realm and also um, with an eye towards religion? How would you grade the health of our democracy right now? I would grade it as degraded, seriously degraded. You and I remember the Nixon years and the Watergate crisis and so on and so forth. But what we saw then, and let's just use Watergate as an example, because I think there are some important distinctions here. Republicans recognized at some point along the way, a very late point, but along the way, that the Nixon presidency was no longer viable. Richard Nixon recognized at some point that his presidency was no longer viable. And Richard Nixon, you know, for people my age, you know, the great villain of our of our youth, Richard Nixon stepped down from office in part because he was being urged by fellow Republicans. There is none of that going on out here. There is none of that going. There are no Republicans except people who formerly held seats in the in the House and Senate who are standing up and saying this is this is just wrong. And so that's the part in this country that really scares me. And of course, as you know, Paul, I mean, we look to other parts of the world. There are Donald Trumps sitting in, in high places in, in Central Europe, in South America. I mean, maybe what keeps me awake more than anything is that there are other Donald Trumps out there. And this may be a bigger issue than even what's going on here. Um, there seems yeah. to be a global movement in that direction. And that frightens me. I, I'm not a, an expert in international relations, but it frightens me. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, of course, that is really presenting a challenge for our country is uh, what's happening in the Middle East. And I don't yeah. need you to opine on necessarily what's going on there, but I do think it's important for us to really talk about what's happening here. Before that war started, there was a spike in anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hate to levels we hadn't seen since 2001. That yeah. was before. Now yeah. it's absolutely out of control and it's actually leading to fatalities. Yeah. And I just wonder, like, what do you think how this plays into our politic? I'll say from my standpoint, you know, this is the most difficult time I've ever had in my 25 years of interfaith relations. It's very, very difficult. And it is not made easier by politicians who some, not all, but some who seem to be leveraging it for their political gain. And I think that we are seeing that, but I'm just curious how you're understanding this and seeing this as far as what's happening in this country. I think, Paul, that's exactly the issue. Uh, I think it is the leveraging of tragedy that we see uh, among political leaders, some political leaders um, in this country um, and around the world, uh, but certainly in this country. I, one of the things that I don't remember who wrote it, but at some point after this 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 attack in Israel and, and the subsequent uh, incursions uh, into Gaza, someone said, I can my heart can be broken for two groups of people at the same time. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think there is a, a, a great reluctance on the part of a number of people to accept that premise. But again, this reflects our domestic politics. You have to be on my side or you are my enemy. 
and that's uh, that's a dangerous place to be. And that that seems to be how we view a lot a lot of people in this country view the issues that are facing us both domestically and internationally. If you do not agree with me, I mean, look <laughs> look at the House of Representatives. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene oh, and yeah. all that. Oh yeah. Right? This is what it is. If you don't hold the same view that I do, you are my enemy. This is dangerous territory that we're in. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're around Thanksgiving time, and you know we've talked a lot of doom and gloom here. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, why? Why don't you say a little bit about you know what you're thankful for as far as you know this country, but also anything in your personal life or anything you're thankful for uh, today. I am, as always, thankful for for family and friends. Um, they help uh, keep my spirits up. They help me keep uh, a little bit, I think, more um, um, help, help <laughs> call me out when I'm being unreasonable and 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 not thinking clearly about things. But I and I'm also thankful that there is a great there is an effort out there on the part of good people, good organizations like the Interfaith Alliance to raise awareness to what's going on because people need to understand what the implications of this is. And this is the most important thing that, that we have to do, the people who are working hard to do that. I'm seeing it in faith traditions, which we didn't always see. Progressive uh, faith traditions are, are coming to the fore and saying, this cannot stand. We we need to find our better angels and lean on them. So I'm I'm thankful for that and, uh, and for the opportunity to get to talk to you today, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Greg LaBelle is Director Emeritus of George Washington University Native American Political Leadership Program and Semester in Washington Politics Program. A longtime assistant professor of political management, Greg has also worked in numerous presidential campaign. Greg, thank you so much for being with us today on The State of Belief. Thank you, Paul. It was a real pleasure to, to spend some time with you. Take care. Up next, Sharon Harris-Ewing, Lisa Freund, and Tony Fisher from Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. There are enormous challenges to our democracy and to religious freedom right now. A lot is happening at the national level, but so much more is happening in state houses and in communities across the country. Florida, in particular, keeps generating relentless headlines. Whether inspired by the presidential aspirations of its governor or the agenda of its Christian nationalist-dominated legislature, the state seems less and less welcoming to the kind of diversity that made it a thriving, colorful place for so long. One of the things I am most proud of at Interfaith Alliance this past year is the coming together of dedicated activists in Naples, 
to found Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida. And I've been eager to tell this story on the State of Belief. I am joined now by three members of the steering committee, Reverend Dr. Sharon Harris-Ewing, a retired UCC minister and educational psychologist who has been in Naples since 2016. She's also the vice president of Americans United there. Dr. Lisa Freund, who has a doctorate in special ed and literacy and who's been in Naples since 2012. She's also on the Jewish Community Relations Council. And Reverend Tony Fisher, a UU minister serving 10 years at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Greater Naples. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for for having us with you. Great to have you. Um, This has really been one of the highlights of my year is visiting Southwest Florida. And first of all, like just learning about what was happening in Southwest Florida and Colliers County. I think the way it first happened was through the League of Women Voters. We had a we had a gathering and uh, and and I was talking about Christian nationalism and and the way religion can be a positive have a positive function in in uh, in a community and. I think all of you were kind of like, you know what? Would you come down and talk to <laughs> talk to us in Southwest Florida? And we had have had so many good gatherings down there. But what it opened my eyes to is a community that is thriving in some ways, and yet is kind of feeling a pressure of a kind of Christian nationalist agenda that is that is making it less hospitable. Um, Lisa, why don't you talk a little bit about what it feels like to be in um, Collier County right now in Southwest Florida and kind of what, what you've been sensing that makes you want to be part of an interfaith movement that is uh, trying to offer another way? Well, uh, I described Collier County um, as a, a- our part of Collier County is a blue dot in the Red Sea. And we're trying to part the Red Sea, but it's really kind of difficult. Um, I have been trying to pull together coalitions across issues, across party lines for years, because the two-party system really does not work in Collier County anymore. Um, There's too much of an imbalance. And Sharon, you've been here for the last seven years. Have you seen a shift in the way um, Collier County feels in those years? It was basically you came down in the the beginning of the uh, Trump presidency. Yes, um, I came down actually in the summer before he was elected and and was part of working to have him not get elected. Um, But I would say that I've experienced uh, a great deal of change. And there are some people who've written a good analysis of what's happened. But just in in two places, we see it. Uh, and we see clear examples of leaders who express Christian nationalist views. One is on the school board, um, a person who says there is no such thing as separation of church and state, and we ought to begin our meetings with invocations, and we ought to return to Christian values. Um, And again, on the Board of County Commissioners, we have a person who says there is no separation of church and state. And they're just sort of exemplars of uh, a growing, loud, I think minority, but but loud uh, people who, who espouse those views. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Reverend Tony, what what is a way that you have seen this impact the people that you are caring for at the Unitarian Church? What what impact does it have on the daily lives of people in um, the greater Naples area? It's a great question. And, and it, it, we've certainly been feeling it much more uh, as the weeks and months roll on towards 2024. But there's tremendous angst, uh, um, you know, in the hearts of the of our congregants here, and and uh, partly, you know, we are uh, a sort of liberal oasis in a in a very uh, conservative community, uh, and there's strain in that. Uh, people can't talk to their neighbors or don't feel that they can. Uh, people are seeing what's going on at the local boards. People are concerned about the national politics. People are seeing what's going on in the world in terms in terms of authoritarian governments um, sort of rising. There's just a general angst, and it's it's palpable in in our members. We shared during services a joys and sorrows time, and it'll often bubble up into that, which is supposed to be very personal time of sharing. But it the the, the concern, the angst, the worry bubbles up in those times. Mm. And, and Sharon. Uh... You know, one of the things that has been so great for me to see, um, and and it's just an important part of Interfaith Alliance right now, is the way that uh, Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida has showed up for the LGBTQ community and recognized that this is a really, you know, that the people who might feel it most viscerally right now, uh, not exclusively, but, but definitely, are members of the LGBTQ community who maybe feel like they're kind of front lines in the these culture wars that are being manufactured right now. And there have been some great examples of Interfaith Alliance Southwest Florida partnering, I think, with local um, LGBTQ activists. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how how important that is in this moment in our national conversation. Well, let me uh, introduce it just by saying that when we formed and our very first meeting was at the end of March of this year, following your wonderful lecture in February, but we set two priorities. One was to try to address all instances of discrimination, prejudice, bias, racism, anti-Semitism, and certainly the LGBTQ community has um, seen a backlash. We started in, in March. In June, a number of us sat at a table. We had managed to pull together a Interfaith Alliance banner um, at Pride Fest to make it mm. clear that we um, stood with um, the LGBTQ community. One of the exciting things to come is that in April, we're going to have a Pride convocation or Pride worship service, which was something that was done in this community for 13 years, but hasn't been done for the last seven or eight, and we're going to bring it back. We also had a program that was entitled Queer Youth Speak Out, and some high school students talked about their experience, and people were very moved by what they heard and anxious to be supportive of young people and, and all members of the LGBTQ community. Yeah, when I was down there and we had we had a wonderful leader in the LGBTQ community who spoke and and they were just like really it almost seemed visibly moved by the fact that we had several hundred people who came out to be part of a, a broader community. Other people spoke, but she was just like, I really I'm so glad to feel your support. And I, I think that that's that's sometimes missing in a city. You know, I'm 
when I go to Naples, I'm like, oh my God, everybody's in car here. I try to walk somewhere and they're like, oh my God, what is he doing walking? Uh, you know, it's a very like, it can feel like a very isolated pockets. And I think to come into a room where you feel supported. And so I just think it's so important because one of the things we keep, you know, when we're on the Hill, when we're in Capitol Hill, we're like, we go into, um, you know, Congress uh, representatives offices and we say, just to remind you that most religious people support LGBTQ people. So just to, I want you to hear that, like, you know, this is not this isn't even close anymore. And and yet there is a loud group that says our religious freedom allows us to be discrimination instead of celebration. It just drives me crazy. But it's so important that aspect of the work, which is basically that religious people from all different backgrounds showing up and saying, we love you and we want you to thrive, too. I just think it's a really important aspect of it. Um, Lisa, you're involved in the Jewish community as well as Interfaith Alliance Southwest Florida. And one of the, the things that has been very, um, you know, surprising to me, frankly, but I guess it shouldn't be surprising, is the amount of anti-Semitism that is happening in Southwest Florida. And even um, even in at, at a school board, we had someone who a rabbi who was, you know, intimidated and. We had all sorts of things. Can you talk a little bit about how the Jewish community is feeling right now in the rise of this kind of, you know, white Christian nationalism? Well, it's interesting because uh, Rabbi Miller, you're actually talking about the the rabbi who spoke on our panel. And yes, um, he had covered the the fact that anti-Semitism, as he said, has always existed kind of you know, under the radar in our county. But we've both seen an incredible increase in the past, uh, probably past year or two. Um, There are churches that have a, a very strong connection to the Jewish community, and then there are those that don't. One of the changes that's come come about is the person who uh, is my chair on the JCRC, um, he's thrilled that we, uh, Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida, have his have their backs because one, the Jewish community is very used to defending itself against attacks. But when uh, other community groups come to support us, uh, it, it, it really makes a huge difference. What's going on in, in Naples, uh, it's it's not party-based. The, the movement toward hope and against divisiveness and all, it's not, it's not gen- being generated by a political party. It, it's coming from um, the fact that we talk to each other. So you mentioned Corey Cratchen, who is the head of Naples Pride. She's a, she is a good friend of mine, but also we work in tandem when there was after um ian after the hurricane um they started uh pride started a whole relief center well guess who showed up i mean you you showed up and temple shalom showed up and the naacp was connected and we and there was this working together we we have some other organizations one is called call your freedom um, we've got the now chapters. The League of Women Voters is actually very helpful uh, in a lot of ways, although, of course, they have to try very hard to stay nonpartisan. But so are we. 
so it's it's that coalition of of organizations we've got down here and you know everybody wants to be the captain of their own of their own team and yet somehow lately we've all been on the same page with with messaging a lot more than we used to be yeah and i so appreciate you saying that and that's really important right now especially when we think about what's happening in the middle east and and that the jewish community definitely feels under attack but also many in the muslim and one of the the terrible ironies is that the attacks against jews and the attacks against muslims are spiking in a way that hasn't been seen in recent history and it's so important that Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida is offering this place of pe- where people can actually come together and be supportive and have each other's backs. I, I really love that. What are some like tangible ways that you all are showing up? I think one of the most interesting ones is what about school boards? And in some ways, school boards, it's like kind of like, oh, school boards, isn't that cute? Like, you know, people are going to be like, you know, going, you know, you know, that'll be nice. And yes, we will have like a parade or something like that. But actually, school boards are like the front front line. A lot of this. And one of the things that when I went down the day I was speaking at Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida, there was a headline saying 400 books removed from shelves. And then these other things that have been happening at the school board. And I think one of the great and brave things that Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida is doing is saying, we have to show up at school board meetings and actually offer a point of view. And by the way, this is not an anti-Christian point of view. It's not an anti-religious point of view. It's about an American point of view that actually allows all of religions to thrive. And I think that that's really important when we talk about people who want to impose their religion on school boards. You can be religious, that's fine, but just don't impose it on on children who are there for everybody. So I'm just, talk a little bit about like, what has been your strategy around school boards? Because it seems like it's been really important part. Maybe, maybe um, Sharon, do you want to take that? Sure. I, I, I have a special place in my heart for um, school boards because I was a school board member in um, upstate New York for nine years, but of a small district. And for those who are in other places in the country, we have a school board of five members for a district that serves over 50,000 students. Yeah. And so you can imagine how important every single person who is elected to that board is. And we had our monthly meeting on Monday of this week and talked about the fact that the school board has this invocation proposal on its agenda for next week. There are some other issues. So we have a person who is a wonderful kind of watch guard who lets us know what's on the agenda and where where we need to be. And one of us will be present at the school board, maybe more than one of us to say, not only as individuals, but as the steering committee of the Interfaith Alliance, we stand against the book bans, we stand against imposing religion in any way, et cetera. Um, but it, yeah. it's an important place of witness. It's a really important place of witness. The other thing that I've seen you doing is, as an Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida, is doing outreach to the media. So sometimes you're offering op-eds, you're being in conversation. I think this is so important because it's like people think, oh, the media, like they're out there. There's not, you know, but actually the media are looking for stories and you guys are a great story. Tony, talk to me a little bit about how you imagine 
working with the media to talk that helps shape a narrative as part of a, the the role of a, a interfaith alliance affiliate in a location like Southwest Florida? Well, I think uh, Lisa might answer that question uh, to a better degree, but I think making those connections with journalists who who we know would be sympathetic to sort of the story we want to tell, writing letters to the editor. Our local news is is it's a really interesting paper that we have in Southwest Florida, and that a number of the letters to the editor are from liberal points of view um, here in this very conservative area. Um, but the paper itself is is not a robust, I wouldn't say, uh, institution, and therefore they don't have a strong editorial um, policy or or uh, a strategy themselves. So uh, it's up to us to educate a lot of the writers so that we can get the kind of coverage and the kind of uh, build the kind of awareness among the readership that that we might like to see. Uh, I yeah. think the the team here has done a great job uh, writing letters to the editor. We have members who are writing letters, not necessarily under our name, but doing great job uh, keeping issues in the fore in in the op-ed uh, area. I, I I really just think could, one of our coming strategies really has to be this: how do we interface with not only local media but but sort of uh, in a wider wider framework in South Florida altogether. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to add that that the, sh the shifts that I've seen in Southwest Florida uh, since I've been here, we have a very robust uh, activist community. We have had for a long time. I mean, uh, we have a, a very energized uh, LGBTQ plus uh, um, contingent down here in Southwest Florida. But now they are feeling um, they are feeling threatened. They've had wonderful pride festivals every year for a number of years, and now they're they're going to be struggling to get permission uh, through the the city council in order to to hold that event. Uh, we've had in the past numerous marches, and now it's a struggle to get permission uh, and permits to do the marches. And uh, people don't come out because they're they have some concern about safety. So. It's not just the political situation, which is is in some ways has shifted significantly to uh, the right, but there's this sort of underlying threat um, that people are aware of. Um, this is an area of you know that that supported buses going up to January sixth in in Washington D.C. a few years ago. So there's a there's just an underlying discomfort in 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 um, in the way things are, and people are feeling a bit uh, anxious about what's happening. Violence is a real threat, and and we've talked about that on this show. And that there is a contingent out there that is 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 has has is vocal about the need for violence in this moment, and they tend to be overwhelmingly on the right. And it is extremely disturbing. And so when people are feeling intimidated, it's because that's that's a strategy. It's 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 in some ways called terrorism uh, because it's using fear in order to get your way. And the that the government is uh, 
is 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 shutting down the ability of free speech and free expression feels very um again anti-american and and uh and against the ideals of the country and it's and it's, it's extremely disturbing lisa why don't you also talk about um media because i really you know as a media guy myself i'm i'm passionate about this tell what is your thought about the way to shape narrative in southwest florida and, and how that might be an inspiration for others listening well, I, I'm the chair of our communications committee, and um, we've worked on a number of things. Um, one thing I want to say about um, the newspapers down here is the reporters keep changing. They're very young. It's a small market, and they get other opportunities and they leave. But I have whoever is currently um, reporting for the Naples Daily News, I have on speed dial. <laughs> because right. yeah. and, and connect with them through Twitter, connect with them through LinkedIn. And then when a new person comes on, we're, we're right, you know, we're right in contact with them too. There are online news sources around here. Uh, we have some t connections to TV reporting. We almost got a, 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 a reporter from the local NBC station, a team to our event list um, last week, November 9th. Um, but they had grabbed another story. Uh, we're also in touch with um, a woman who is a reporter for the Gannett Papers in Southwest Florida. She is the social action reporter, and she is planning on writing um, an article about Interfaith Alliance of Southwest Florida. So this is all yeah. important. We also have somewhat of a social media presence. I'm managing a Facebook group. And we've got our, our website, but we have more work to do in that regard. Well, tell as long as we're there, why don't you tell people how to find you? Like, what is the website and what is your social media so that so that everybody can follow you? Even if they're not in Southwest Florida, they can follow you and learn more about what you're doing as an inspiration about what you, our listeners, can do in your hometown. So what are what are the uh, website URL and, and uh, some of the social media handles? Okay, the URL is interfaithalliance.org slash SWFL. The email address is important. Uh, it's SWFL interfaith at gmail.com. Great. And do you have an Instagram account or what is your social media of preference? Haven't done that yet, but I think that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> You're just building. We're building. This is great. I am on. I am on Instagram. I'm not fond of Twitter. Um, we have a Facebook group. While this work is exciting and gratifying, it can also be very difficult. So I'm curious what each of you has as a as a spiritual tool, almost, or you don't have to describe it that way. But what are the ways that you keep going? Uh, in the face of a lot of pressure and a lot of difficulty, what are you know? Is are is there a is there a um, an inspirational figure that you look to? Is there a quote that you use? Is there a meditation practice? Uh, Tony, why don't you start and then we'll talk to Lisa and Sharon. What what is a way that you keep going in the face of a lot of difficulty? For me, uh, my spiritual practice is is meditation and uh, walking. Uh, both. Uh, I do both as often as I can, most every day. And that sort of grounds me in in this 
place on this earth. And um, the other piece is a, a, a belief that, that there are folks out there that need uh, us as, as a unifying organization, as a unifying group who really, I mean, I really trust that there are people who want uh, to hear and need to hear this message. Great. Sharon? It's interesting. I, I I said at the beginning, I have wanted ever since I've been in Naples to have some kind of interfaith uh, group and, and network. I've been a part of that in other places, not exactly the same, but part of what keeps me going is just the feeling that it is so important that we come together across faith traditions and uh we had someone at the meeting the other night we always say diverse faiths and no faith and and a woman introduced herself and said i'm of the no faith category and we said welcome we're glad you're here and so there if i think about my call to ministry which was a long time ago but this is just part of of what i have felt called to do so in my so-called retirement um this is it's just close to my heart and and the enthusiasm of other people keeps me going but it, it i i feel a call to do this mm -hmm. lisa what, what what keeps you going well in terms of faith um rabbi hillel had uh commented something like i don't have the exact quote uh but treat your fellow uh person as you would want to be treated yourself that itself that is the whole torah there is nothing yeah. else and 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 that resonates with me all the time the, every single uh and i and i'm trying to get this across to a lot of people these days every single major religion has a golden rule it has some version of the golden rule and that's 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 really what we're talking about when we were in the room with those people on november 9th that's the kind of thing that sustains me tremendously because you could feel and and then I got feedback from people on on the um, email you know at our email of how wonderful it was to be in a room with other people who feel as strongly as we do that hate and divisiveness have no place in our community. And so that's what keeps me going is, is events like that and talking to people and hearing from people who say it was so wonderful to know I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. That's such a theme for Interfaith Alliance is that, you know, that comes up again and again. And when we show up and do trainings and bring people together, people are like, oh, it just felt like I, I just felt not alone. And that is really, that's what success looks like for us is bringing people together. That's alliance. That's the alliance of Interfaith Alliance. And so I, I love that. We like to end this show with a um, some, some hopeful notes. So what gives you all hope? And maybe you just covered this, but... Is there anything that gives you hope right now as we look towards the election, as we look towards it? What is giving you hope right now? Sharon, you want to start? Well, I I think reference has been made to our November 9th event. And for people who are interested in organizing, that gives me hope. I think it gives all of us hope. 
more than 200 people came and i think it was a wonderful combination of your presentation paul and we we that's a gift that you were able to be with us and then local leaders talking about what christian nationalism looks like in terms of anti-semitism and racism and backlash against lgbtq community and also the school board but we have heard so many people say they felt the positive energy in the room and the question now is, what do we do with that energy? How do we build on it? And, and what strategies do we use? But but so many people felt um, so hopeful and energized by that event. And that gives me a great deal of hope. Thank you. Lisa? Yeah, what gives me hope um, is um, when I go to a school board meeting and there are other people there speaking up and, and, and feeling, you know, saying the very same things uh, that I am, uh, that, that, you know, yes, the school board did need to follow the law and, and, and remove books from the shelves, but you guys have been a little bit overzealous. <laughs> why is that? <laughs> you know, why have you, why have you done it this way? Um, being able to, have other people in the room because I, I had gone to school board meetings in the past where I was literally the only one speaking out against whatever manifestation of Christian nationalism there was um, and anything anti-education. And it's it's this is giving me hope. And what's happening is that the school board is responding. This is a very, very Christian nationalist focused uh, ideological board, three of the people on the board follow that ideology. And yet the decisions they're making seem to be more mod modulated. And, and this gives me tremendous hope. That's wonderful. Tony? What gives me hope is, is when I stand back at the end of, of some of our events and watch what's going on in the room after the event and the 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 people who are continuing to to have conversations, people of different backgrounds and and different colors and and just making connections and all of a sudden feeling like there's people they can talk to and people that they can work with. Um, and we're stimulating those conversations. We don't have to do all this alone. We just need to, to be here and be present to help stimulate further conversations and other folks can take take some of that lead as well. So I see us as sort of, of as, a, as an important momentum builder and, and uh, well, of course, presence, but I just see the energy that's being created in what we're doing and 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 see that it's so necessary and and valuable to to providing a progressive point of view in in a in a time when it's not easy to talk about those things I love it. I think that this is so great. This is about people coming together and, and literally coming together can be a, a hope multiplier. I mean, this is this is just such a good work. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Lisa Freund. Thank you so much to Reverend Dr. Sharon Harris-Ewing. And thank you to Reverend Tony Fisher for all the work you're doing in Southwest Florida and for joining us today on The State of Belief. It was just great to talk to you. Thank Thanks. you for the opportunity. And that's all the time we have for The State of Belief this week. Be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today.
We need your help keeping the state of belief growing. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, can I ask you to forward it to one person in your network this week? You heard about the vibrant community building around shared values happening in Southwest Florida. Some of those same benefits come with being part of these important conversations together. Sharing is easy to do on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org and be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.